Good morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited this morning to talk about hoarders. But this is going to be in the overall context of uh, what we consider to be our discipleship pathway here at Stonebridge. I don't know if you get. I like to bring the awkwardness into lots of situations. Do you know that this is not the only church in the area? Are you aware? <laughs> That's funny. We do that sometimes, though, don't we? We get weird with that, like, oh, there's other churches. Uh, and that's weird because you might ask the question, why are there other churches? Why doesn't God just have one big church? Well, uh, one thing, the Reformation happened, so you can do some history study on that. But uh, the other part is because I really do believe that God in His sovereign wisdom uh, puts pockets of people together in different points in the communities that, that He embeds His people in. Uh, and each one of those has a unique fingerprint, right? They're comprised of the people who make up that local fellowship. And it's neat because you can kind of see the differences that each one of those churches carries. And when we talk about our discipleship pathway, we, we're just saying that for here at Stonebridge, we have some, some values uh, that we want to see lived out in what we think is a pattern of discipleship. We as Christians are called to be disciples who make disciples. That's our, that's our call, right? The Great Commission compels us. Like, once your life has changed, you don't say, like, nah, I'm good to go. But you want to step into other people's lives, and, and together with other believers, uh, you want to see God's kingdom be expanded here on the earth. And so here at Stonebridge, uh, we have said that our discipleship pathway is sort of three major steps. The first is worship gatherings. And we would say, uh, if you are not regularly gathering together in worship to, to sing God's praise, to sit under the teaching of His Word, to fellowship with one another. If that's not a regular part of your life, then you're missing out. You're, you're missing out. You're kind of short-circuiting what that is. Now, you might say like, you, some people might be like, wait a minute, that, that, I, don't, I don't understand why you would say that. Because church is not just about like what, and we'll get into this a little bit, church is not just about what we can get out of it, right? Church is, church is not to make us feel good. It's not a building that we come into to get our needs met. It is the gathered body of believers who have said, we value something greater than, than we are. Like, we value Christ and His greatness. And because of that, we set our schedules aside, and we sit under the eternal truth of His Word, and we submit ourselves to obedience in that. That's an important part of discipleship. So I, we would say, if you're not regularly gathering together with God's people to, to worship His greatness, then, then you're missing out on, on the fullness of what it could be. The second step, we would say, is life groups, that if you're not in, in constant community, the pattern of discipleship in the book of Acts is they met together every single day in homes. Do you know that? And they didn't consider that anything was theirs, but they had all things in common. They made sure that there weren't poor people among them because they met each other's needs. They met physical, spiritual, emotional needs together. That's, that's how they lived, and we would say that's an essential part of discipleship. So even if you come, but you're not connected in, in increasing community with other people whom you're exposing your life to, you're taking the mask off and you're saying, here's the raw, nasty truth of my sin and who I am, if you're not doing that, then, again, you're short-circuiting your discipleship. You're not getting the fullness of what Christ has intended that we would be. And so if you're not in a life group, we would say we want you to, to join a life group, to get in community with other believers. And the third part is what we're going to talk about today, uh, service teams, and why it's essential that we be using our gifts and abilities for 
uh, the proclamation of the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom. And a, and a good kind of segue to get our minds warmed up is the, the post-Christmas letdown, right? The post-Christmas realization of how, how much of a hoarder we are, okay? I, true confessions, we still have one Christmas tree in our house set up, and as I was walking by it and glanced at it yesterday, I, I thought I'd kind of like to leave that up all year. Okay? Now, you might find that to be strange, but when I was a kid, my favorite thing about the Christmas season wasn't even really the gifts. I, I, my parents always had the, gaudy, the good lights. Okay? Now, if you buy white lights because you're like, oh, they're clean and they're not nasty, then you are my enemy. Okay? Like, I, I don't like clean lights. I like nasty, blinking, like multicolored lights that are just like, and like, you can see the, whole, the walls turn colors when they go off. That's the best. And when I was a kid, I would come out and I would look at that. So that's just my favorite. But even thinking about the the post-Christmas season, you know, I'm out in the garage the other day, like cutting up all the boxes to put in the recycling. I'm like, man, this is a a lot of gift boxes. This is a lot of wrapping. This is a lot of tissue paper, right? And you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're like, man, how much stuff did we buy? How much stuff did people buy us? And then you're putting up all your Christmas decorations, and you're like, why do I have an ornament for every year I've been alive? <laughs> I mean, like, at, like if, if Jesus doesn't come back for like another couple hundred years, when people dig up the, the ruins of America, they're going to be like, why did they mark every, why did they mark, every, they mark their birthdays with these little things that you hang off of trees? Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about there too, right? Like we have an ornament for every occasion. And, and as you're putting your stuff up, you start to realize, we got a lot of stuff. And then if you have kids and you bought them Christmas presents, you'll realize within the next year that 50% of the presents they got, they won't use. And a year and a half from now, you'll be putting them in tubs to take to Goodwill. And you're like, why did I ever buy that thing in the first place? They used it for like two weeks and then it was done or it was broken. Agreed? Okay? We, we have gifts that we will never use. And so we might pack them away or we might give them away and and it really is just a weird picture of who we are, especially in this country, that we are hoarders. Like, we, it doesn't take us long to accumulate things that we never want to get rid of, but we don't necessarily use them. And this is where Paul is sort of taking us in Ephesians chapter 4, this idea of being hoarders. He's going to help regulate our understanding of the gifts that we are given as believers and not to hoard those gifts or, or to even just not to sit on them or just use them for ourselves, but how are we supposed to use these in concert with other believers for the advancement of God's kingdom? So I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 25 through 30. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you will. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Father, we ask this morning that you would make us humble, that you would humble our hearts to your word. Lord, that you would help us to see that you have so much more in mind for your body 
than just us getting our needs met and then walking into eternity where we, were, where we assume we will forever get our needs met. Lord, it's not about us, it's about you. I pray that you would help us to orient ourselves in obedience uh, according to your word. Father, we would also pray that if anyone is in here this morning that's never trusted in Christ, that they might hear uh, the gospel in this and, uh, and gloriously repent and believe and be saved. Lord, we love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, we're going to start with this statement that Paul sort of dances around in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I'm not going to go uh, hardcore exegetically through this chapter of Ephesians because we are going to have a series in Ephesians where we will be able to parse these things out a little bit more specifically. But I'm just going to sort of use Ephesians 4 as a guideline for, for understanding gifts and, and how that relates to us as believers and specifically here at Stonebridge in our service teams. First is this, each one of us are given gifts. Each one of us as believers, each one of us who are a member of Christ's body, are given gifts. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And there are multiple places in Scripture where we will see, especially Paul talking about how one of the uh, byproducts, as it is, is, of the Holy Spirit indwelling us is we are given spiritual gifts. We are given gifts to help build up the body of Christ, and that's what Paul is talking about. Now, it's right after he talks about unity. He says in verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he emphasizes the unity of the body of Christ, but then he says, but wait, it's a unity of individuals, right? So there is this idea that each one of us individually as a believer has a gift, or gifts, but that is to be used for the building up of the church. And so as we think about the gifts that God has given us, one of the things that we have to do is correct our thinking about what church is and what church is not. The church is not an organization built to provide for the spiritual needs of people who periodically participate in its activities. The church is not a business set up to make people's lives better. The church is not an organization that bends to the will of what people want in their lives and seeks to accommodate their needs as much as possible. That's not what the church is. But unfortunately, like a very American perspective of church is, I will be loyal to this body of believers as long as they meet my needs and make me feel good. And that's unfortunate because that is not what the church is. That's why sometimes you'll have these standoffs where people will be like, you know, hey, you're not going to do it my way. There are other churches I can go to, right? It's the, my, my policy with that has always been, it's been my policy not to negotiate with terrorists, okay? And I say that jokingly, but also sort of seriously, because we do tend to look at church as a place to get our needs met. We tend to look at church as a place where we can feel good about who we are, rather than something bigger than us. And, and we all need to, to be reminded of that. We are given individual gifts, but we are not primarily in the church, listen to me, individuals. We are a collective of individuals, but none of us, none of us is greater than all of us. Do you understand? 
Like, we are not using our gifts to build ourselves up. The church is a unified collective comprised of unique individuals who all contribute to one another's physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being in order to bring attention to the Savior who has conquered the sinful patterns that divided us. Jesus does something wonderful when He brings us together. He brings us together for the good of one another and for the advancement of His kingdom. So as we build into one another, we display to a world that's watching who doesn't know Christ what it looks like when Jesus changes our lives. So we don't fight about the same things that the world fights about. We don't prioritize the same thing the world prioritizes. So while everybody else is running around trying to stack and build their kingdom, we have willingly laid our pursuit of our own kingdom down so that we can pursue Christ's. That's what the church is. Unfortunately, uh, many people misunderstand that. A church is not a business or an organization that's set up to meet people's needs. It's a movement of God's new people that's sacrificial, individually sacrificial, corporately sacrificial. We also need to emphasize what are we talking about when we're talking about gifts? And there are two sort of categories. There are natural abilities and spiritual gifts. All people have natural abilities. Even people who don't know Jesus have natural abilities. Like, I would uh, recognize that Michael Jordan has natural ability, okay? I'm not a Michael Jordan fan because I'm a Detroit Pistons fan and have been for years. Yes, awesome. One. Uh, so, uh, Michael Jordan ruined, like, my high school and college years uh, because he just destroyed them all the time. Now, I can, I can admit Michael Jordan is a fantastic, was a fantastic basketball player, and probably, probably still is, let's be honest. Uh, LeBron James is the same. Fantastic, fantastic basketball player. Those natural abilities just exist. You can't deny them. We are given natural abilities. The unfair part about natural abilities is some people get more than others, right? My dad once told me I, when I was younger, I was sort of complaining about, you know, I wish I was better at this, and my dad was just seriously like, you're, ne- you're always going to meet somebody who's smarter than you, who's better looking than you, who's funnier than you, who like, is more winsome than you, who's more talented than you. You're just going to have to deal with that. And I was like, well, that's not very helpful. <laughs> but that's one thing that we avoid. We've got to be honest. Some people just have natural abilities just stacked on stacked on stacked. And you look at them and you're like, how is that even possible? Uh, and it seems unfair, right? But, but it's true. But, but we don't even have a great hold on natural abilities because some people, we're so individually driven, some people think they have natural abilities, but no one has ever had the heart to tell them they don't actually have that natural ability, which is why American Idol was a thing for such a long time and why America's Got Talent still exists. Like, somebody in their lives has never been like, you can't sing. Okay, you are not funny. And, and that's unfortunate. <laughs> But we do that even in, in the church a lot, right? Somebody would be like, I have this ability, and we just don't have the heart to tell them. Maybe they don't because we love them, and, and that's not productive. So natural abilities are one thing. Spiritual gifts are another. Now, here's the great thing about spiritual gifts. While natural abilities might not be in the same measure, when you come to Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, everybody gets at least one spiritual gift. 
right? So the, the, the playing field gets a little bit more level when it comes to spiritual gifts. But these spiritual gifts are given to us in addition to whatever natural abilities that we have, and they're not contingent on what we can or can't do. They're contingent on what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And so the power to accomplish those things, you know, we can lose our natural abilities over time, but those spiritual gifts are supernaturally powered by the Holy Spirit. So that's a good word. And as we think about the gifts that God gives to His people, Warren Wiersbe very uh, smartly says this, gifts are not toys to play with. They are tools to build with. And if they are not used in love, they become weapons to fight with. See, our spiritual gifts and even our natural abilities, they're not a toy for us to play with. They're not meant for our enjoyment. God does not gift us to do things so that we can get the most out of life that we possibly can. That's not why He's given us gifts. He's given us gifts for His glory. He's given us gifts to make His name known. When somebody says, man, that's amazing, you say, praise God. I, I, I could never do this had it not been for the grace of God, right? And it's for the building up of, of other people. And if we don't use them in love, they do become weapons where we're almost fighting about who's got the better gift, and I want to use my gift in this way, I want to use my gift in this way, and we find conflict with one another over the very thing that's supposed to bring unity to the body of Christ. God has intended to inhabit His people to display that His grace is great enough to bring enemies together, and His Spirit is powerful enough to increase His kingdom without Him being physically present. Spiritual gifts are amazing because when you think about it, Jesus told His disciples as they were freaking out because He was like, well, I'm going to go to the right hand of the Father now. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're just going to leave us here? And Jesus says, well, it's better for you that I go. Now, in what world would we think that it was better for us if Jesus was not physically present? Well, in Jesus' world. Because he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not only going to cause you to remember all the things that I've taught you, but he's going to bring power. And that power is going to change the world. Like, it is phenomenally mind-blowing that Jesus gave us an economy in which him going from us actually sent power to us, right? And that he does great things through his people, through his church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, without Him being physically present here. It's amazing. And that's our, the way that we're supposed to look at these gifts, that He, by the power of His Holy Spirit, is inhabiting His people to move His kingdom forward. Now, Ephesians 4, 7, and 8 is a reference back to Psalm 68, 18. And if you read Psalm 68, that whole psalm is about the greatness of God. This little bit about he gave gifts to men is in there. But the whole thing is about the greatness of God. So what is Paul trying to point us to? Paul's trying to point us to the natural abilities and spiritual gifts that God gives to people are to be used for his greatness, for his glory. Not for our own kingdom, but for his. But we have conditioned ourselves to ask the wrong questions about life. There's a book called Marching Off the Map by a guy named Tim Elmore, and he specifically works with uh, the, the next generation. He has an organization called Growing Leaders that they go into schools and they help schools. They also help churches. Uh, think about, like, this next emerging generation and what are some of the things that we need to help them with? How can we guide them to be leaders and to be on mission? And in this book, he, he smartly points out the, the distance between the, the conditioning that we have 
uh, had for our younger generations, even for a very long period of time. I want to show you how some of the questions that we would even ask young people uh, are biased towards this radical individualism and, and selfishness, okay? So here are the wrong questions. And if you're a young person, just listen, listen to this very carefully, okay? If you're like high school, college, listen to this. What do you want to major in? What do you want out of life? How much money can you make? What does your heart tell you? That's my least favorite. What does your heart tell you? Sin. It's usually, do it, do it, do it bad, do it bad, do it now. That's what your heart tells you. How can you achieve something great? You see, you see what the basis of those questions is? Like, how can I be for me? How can I make me great? Instead, maybe we should be asking, what problems exist that need to be solved? What do you have to give? How can my life add value in this place? What does Jesus call me to? What are the needs and opportunities right where I am? You see the difference between the, those sets of questions? And unfortunately, adults, we've just done a terrible job continually biasing our young people towards thinking that the best they can hope to attain is building up a good life for themselves. And we wonder why they walk away from churches. Because they've never been told that all of us is greater than just us. They've never been told that your life matters as much as it's directed towards the one who created you. They've never been emphasized that you have to submit yourself to other people in community because you are not the smartest. You are not the funniest. You are not the most talented. You are not the most well-rounded person in the room. And you need other people. And unfortunately, in the church is where some of the, the greatest distance with that has occurred. This type of thinking is not really new either. Jesus encountered this in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. James and John come to Jesus. They're so dumb. Can we just appreciate? <laughs> if Jesus can work with those guys, man, woo, we're all like, there's hope for all of us. James and John at one point, you know, after they're rejected by a village, they're like, let's just torch the village. Can we napalm this thing? <laughs> Jesus is like, oh man, you guys, you guys are something else. So they, with the help of their mommy, go to Jesus, and mommy says, what about my boys? See how beautiful my boys are? How dare you not, like, put them at your right hand. And they're like, yeah, put us at your right hand. We're pretty great. And again, Jesus is like, no, you guys are in the back. <laughs> you guys, I'm going to put somebody else in the front. You guys are in the back. But Jesus, I mean, like that type of thinking, though, is this, the same type of thinking that we still struggle with, right? All of us, all of us. I, I'm I did, like true confessions. Like I still, there are times where in my flesh, I'm like, I just want people to acknowledge how awesome I am, right? And then when they don't, I get mad. Like it's terrible. Like let's just all admit that's how we all function. Like everybody needs to get on the bus of how great I am. Why do we do this? Because sin conditions us to hoard gifts. 
Look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, I want to show you how this connects with the previous passage. In the previous passage, uh, Paul is talking about the unity in the body of Christ because of the individual gifts and all of those individuals working together for the cause of Christ, setting their own desires aside and being unified in, in using their design to point to Jesus. And then he goes into this and says, don't think like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul has to remind the church at Ephesus to consider the difference between an unbelieving mind and new life in Christ. The unbelieving mind says, I'm going to fulfill my desires. The new life says, I set my desires aside so that I can fulfill Christ's mission. Do you understand the difference there, right? So Paul says, don't have that mind in you, okay? A lot of times we read this and we, we see that as don't have the mind of sinning in you. I don't think that's really what Paul's driving to. That's part of it. But, but the, the impetus behind that is Paul is saying, like, these people who don't know Jesus, they're driven by their desires. But if you have new life in Christ, you are not. You are not driven by your desires. You are driven by a desire to serve others. You are driven by knowing that all your greatest hopes are fulfilled in who Christ is. You are satisfied in Him. So you don't seek to, to fulfill your own fleshly desires. He says the body, and earlier in the passage, he says that the body grows and builds itself up, but the unbeliever walks in futility. This is individualism versus community, right? This is, this is the individual trying to get what they think they deserve versus the community who says, no, we deserve uh, judgment, but Christ has given us salvation, and on top of that, he's given us gifts and, and brought us together. So there's an individualism versus community. The primary difference between a life changed by Christ and a life without Christ is a desire to set aside your personal agenda of experiencing life, to grow with others towards Christ's agenda of experiencing life. And those two things are very different. Your agenda of experiencing life is not nearly as important as Christ's agenda of experiencing life. Christ has told us this is life right? To lay down your life is to find life. To serve others is to find satisfaction, right? To find true fulfillment. One of the biggest obstacles to churches living on mission is that many individual believers see churches as a place or places that exist to meet their needs. You know, many Christians struggle with many of the same things that the unbeliever struggles with and sort of walk in a general sense of futility because we are trying to achieve the same things they are, but we're using Jesus to do it. This is a big ouch, okay? Now, so we, we need to be prepared because the, the next three things, I want you to think about this because I, 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 I think a lot of us still struggle with, like, we're trying to get the same things that people who don't follow Jesus are, but we're trying to use Jesus to do it. And when you try to use Jesus to build your own kingdom, in his grace, he will tear that down quickly and violently <laughs> in his grace. We want acceptance, so sometimes we use the church as a mechanism for self-help. We want appreciation, so we sometimes use the church as a place to receive honor. 
We want accomplishment, so we sometimes use the church as a vehicle for our goals. Now, I've seen this in myself at times, right? Like using Jesus to build our own kingdom. We want to be vigilant to make sure that our motives for being part of a faith community are more driven by how we can use our gifts to build others up and not use others to build us up, right? Use our gifts to build others up, not use other people to build ourselves up. What are we supposed to be then? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives us a look from verses 24 through 27. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What Paul is saying is the body of Christ is not us trying to get our own agenda. The body of Christ is if one member suffers, then we all suffer. Why? Because we're more concerned with all of us than with one of us. You, you understand? That should make us really uncomfortable. That should, should make us uncomfortable because it, it is against the principles that we are raised with in this country, right? Because the, the, the overriding principle we're raised with in this country is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and that's, that's really, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you guys, that is antithetical to what Jesus says when he says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Life in Christ is not, I have the right to pursue what I want. Life in Christ is, I have the compulsion to lay my life down, even if it means people walk all over me. That is radically different. And we have to struggle against the mindset that says, this is about me getting what I want. It's counterintuitive to us. Francis Schaeffer says this, to the extent that we want power, we are in the flesh, and the Holy Spirit has no part in us. Christ put a towel around himself and washed his disciples' feet. We should ask ourselves from time to time, whose feet am I washing? Some churches have made foot washing into a third sacrament. Members wash each other's feet during their worship service. While most of us think it's a mistake to make this a sacrament, let us admit that it is 10,000 times better to wash each other's feet in a literal way than never to wash anybody's feet in any way. It would be better for us to make a mistake and institute a third sacrament of literal foot washing than to live out our lives without once consciously choosing to serve each other. Doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way is not an exotic thing. It is having and practicing the mentality which Christ commands. And we need to ask ourselves the question, is my life more service-oriented? Am I, am I a servant at heart? Or do I need to pray for the repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit to become what Christ has said is true of His followers? Thankfully, Jesus shows us how to use the gifts that we're given. Christ shows us the purpose of our gifts. And Ephesians 4, 25 through 29, therefore, having put away falsehood, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but let him do labor, uh, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, I want to show you this. Paul says, here's the new life in Christ. Once you have new life in Christ, you know, this is your orientation. But then he, he says, okay, so if you formerly lived in this sinful pattern, then you replace that sinful pattern with something differently. And I'll use the specific example of if, if you were a thief, then not only do you not steal anymore, but instead, now you do the opposite of what you did. You work and give. You don't just stop stealing. You work and give. You know, one of the values that we're trying to emphasize around here is sharing over stealing. We all were once thieves. We stole from God all the generous blessings that he gave to us to use for our own kingdoms. When we come to repentance in Christ, we, we recognize the error of our ways, and then we say to him, I, wanna, I will exhaust myself for the kingdom. So everything that you give me, I want to give it away. Everything that you give me, I want to use for your kingdom. That is supposed to be our orientation, and we have to continually correct our understanding of that. We have to continually move ourselves away from like, this is for me, to this is for other people. This is for me, to this is for other people. And it could be in finances, it could be in our, in our spiritual gifts and abilities, and in the way that we approach community, we have a, a different orientation. I grew up with an understanding that, uh, that Christianity was about, like, don't do bad things. Avoid, avoid doing bad things. Okay? I can't tell, uh, I can't give you a less compelling mission statement than don't do bad things. Okay? There is not a, a less compelling mission statement than avoid sin. What do we do as Christians? We avoid sin! Yay! That's not a great battle cry. Okay? That's not a Braveheart level William Wallace battle cry. We are not meant to just avoid bad things as, as Christians. But some of us have, have thought that that's what the life is, this weird neutrality of where we just become vanilla and boring. And that's not what it's about. Paul says not, we don't just avoid sin. We recognize the patterns of selfishness in our life. And when we've been changed by Christ, we, we opposite those patterns. We go in the other direction. So if you stole from people, you don't just stop stealing. Now you go work and you give away right? So the answer to our hoarding is not, I should just stop hoarding. The answer to our hoarding is, I should start sharing. Completely in the opposite direction. That's repentance. That's true repentance. A good question for us is maybe like, am I a drainer or a driver? Am I a life sucker or am I a life giver? And if you have to ask the question, right, you, you, I think you generally know. Like, uh, th- like sometimes we can just kind of just drain the resources out of the people that we're around because we just want, you know, I just want people to pour into me. I think all of us do that at some point. You know, First Peter 2.16, Peter says that our freedom shouldn't be used for our own desires. Our freedom should be used to serve others. Why are we set free in Christ? Well, it's not so that we can have a nice life and, and be completely fulfilled as an individual. We are set free in Christ so that we can serve one another. That's the call. Life in Christ is more than just giving up bad habits. It's the replacement of life-draining behavior with life-giving behavior. And we can see this in Philippians chapter 2. Our pattern of life is the same. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, that he didn't consider equality with God as something to be held on to tightly, but instead he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death on a cross. That's the pattern of life that Jesus gives us. Serve. Serve one another. And, you know, serving in Christ, serving Christ is not just about finding a ministry and church to volunteer in. We have to be honest about this. Like, our service doesn't end if we, if we volunteer. Like, we want you to be on a service team here. If you're not currently 
in, in a, a church ministry in some, ca- uh, some capacity here, we want you to be involved on a service team because we, we need you to be to, to, to make sure that we're all doing what we're supposed to do, that we're using our gifts and abilities to build up the body of Christ. But we know that that's not the end all, right? Like our mission as a church is not just to have things be nice in here. Our mission as a church is ultimately, hopefully, to go out as a as a community and reach our community who don't know Jesus Christ, right? We, do we all agree on that? But both are necessary. Both are necessary. The church is being built by Christ to grow in grace and extend that grace. We need internal ministries in our church to grow in grace, right? But we grow in grace so that we can then extend that grace to those outside our community. We do need, we need both. And so we would encourage you to, to get involved in a service team here. And, and this is where I, I want to go to three very specific points of application very quickly as we think about this, as we think about what Paul has said and trying to move away from selfishness into this. Number one, correct any misconceptions you have about the body of Christ. It is not a club. The body of Christ is not a club. You don't have to be good enough to get in, right? And it is not just some place you pay dues to and you go hang out and you get all the benefits. That's not what it's about. It's not a self-improvement organization. If, if you are looking for self-improvement uh, as your life goal, you'd probably be better off with Oprah than with the church, if that's your goal, okay? Just plain self-improvement. It does require full participation. Like, this is about all of us working together, knowing each other, growing in community, serving one another in love. That's how we were designed Number two, be aware of your design. Do you really know your natural abilities and spiritual gifts? If you don't, we would invite you to figure that out. Gather together around you wise people, wise believers, either here or outside, people that you trust who can help point you to what your natural abilities are. And in some moments, you, will, you will, might think you have a natural ability, and lovingly, people will come alongside you and say, I love you, you do not have that ability. And that would be the greatest grace that some of us would ever receive right? You understand what I'm saying? Like, we can get honest with each other. Once we get into that realm of trying to find out how we're designed, then we can point each other towards where we might actually be strong, and that we can all cover all those areas. Number three, find a place to serve now, even if it isn't your ideal. Get on a team. It's better to do something here than just say, I'll figure it out in the future. And there are lots of opportunities. And here's where I'm going to make an impassioned plea, not just for our church, but for church in general all over our country. We need men who will not fall into the trap of thinking, how do I want to say this? You're not good with kids. One of the gaping holes in church ministries really all over our country is I think men just think women are better with kids, so we'll let women do the children's ministry work, and we've got other stuff to do, right? I typically, in working with young people over a number of years, I typically see the greatest disconnect from middle school to high school with boys, and honestly, a lot of that is because they have no idea what it looks like to be a man of Christ, right? They've got some skewed understanding that either being a man is like setting things on fire and shooting things, and that's all it is. Or, or skewed in a different direction where nobody really knows how to define to, to them what it looks like to be caring and 
unselfish and servant-hearted and to, to care more about building others up and building yourself up. They, our children need strong, godly men with robust theology who will sit down with them in the craziness and chaos of a classroom where they're only paying attention for about five minutes out of 20 and love them and teach them the word. And if you're sitting in here this morning and you're like, I'm not good with kids. Number one, if you have kids and you're like, I'm not good with kids, we got problems. <laughs> Number two, you were a kid once. It, all, it takes is, all it takes is this. All it takes is saying that I actually value that this next generation would know the God who made them. And that you would show them that you don't value your own comfort more than you value their growth. And we would encourage you, if you're a guy in here especially, like, yes, we need all sorts of people, but I find the void is most often with men thinking, I'm not good with kids. Well, I'm not either. But I didn't get a choice because I'm a parent. <laughs> and they really are wonderful. We can learn so many things even about our father through spending time with kids. There's so many opportunities for you guys to get involved. Use your spiritual gifts and abilities. Start here. Get on a service team. And I just want to end by just quickly saying this. Jesus uh, had just a short amount of time to tell his followers important things. And right before they had the Last Supper, Jesus meets them all welcomes them at the door, and then proceeds to take the lowest point of the servant in the house and wash all of their feet right before they're told, this is how you're going to remember me. This is the pattern of life that Jesus calls us to, to lay our lives down for the good of other people, not to build our own kingdom, but to say, you know what? I'm not too good to wash your feet. I'm not too good to serve you. This is the pattern of discipleship Christ has called us to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, Lord, but you would show us that, that none of us is more important than all of us. You've designed your body to work that way. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.